What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome back. Today's episode is going to be brought to you by Mystery Ranch, built for the mission. And you already know about their kick-ass fire packs. But did you also know that they have a ton of other load-bearing essentials? Well, they have solutions for hunting, fishing, backpacking, skiing, snowboarding. You name it, they probably make a pack for it. And you can go check it all out over at www.mysteryranch.com. But even cooler is they have... Well, it's live. Yeah. The moment we've all been waiting for with the Backbone series and the Backbone Scholarship, well, it is live. Go over to www.mysteryranch.com and check it out. They are giving back to the community. So if you want to contribute and tell a story of Wild and Fire and have the potential to win one of these kick-ass grants, these $1,000 grants, a limited number of them, well, take your shot. Write your story. Tell the story that needs to be told to the general public and to our fellow fire peers. It is awesome. And I'm super awesome. I'm super stoked that I I get to work with these folks on this whole project. So once again, go over to www.mysteryranch.com and put your name in the hat and check it out. Banker Point Podcast is also going to be brought to you by our premier coffee sponsor. Who is that? Well, it is none other than Hotshot Brewery. Oh yeah, it's kick-ass coffee for a kick-ass cause where a portion of the proceeds will always go back to the Wildland Firefighter Foundation, which is an awesome organization in and of itself. Yeah, so... And what else do they make? Well, they make a ton of other stuff. I'm pretty sure you guys are well aware of the full line of wildland firefighting themed apparel and all the tools of the trade to get your morning started off right. So go over there to www.hotshotbrewing.com and check it out. Oh yeah. And while you're at it, they support the Anchor Point Podcast by slinging our merch. Oh, yeah. So if you're looking for one of those Anchor Point Podcast tees or stickers, well, you know where to find it. www.hotshotbrewing.com. Go check them out. The Anchor Point Podcast is also going to be brought to you by our latest and greatest sponsor, and that is none other than Manscaped. Oh, yeah. Your balls will thank you. Are you looking for the ultimate stocking stuffers for this holiday season? Well, Look no further than Manscaped because they have the tools of the trade to make a surefire win for your stocking stuffer essentials this year. Oh, yeah. And if you guys have a white elephant gift uh, thing going on, well, this is one of the ballsiest gifts you could probably give. And it's pretty badass. Manscaped is uh, the only brand dedicated to below the belt, uh, below the waist, below the belt. Same thing, whatever. All over body hair, grooming and hygiene products. And check this out. It's kind of great news, actually. So for you folks in Canada and Australia and Europe, well, they just released their products across Europe, Canada, and Australia. So if you guys are looking for the ultimate in ball grooming and just just ass hair, every hair. I mean, shit, they even make nose hair trimmers. It's it, They got it all, man. It's, it's pretty cool. Uh, I've had one of the lawnmower 3.0s for quite some time now and it's awesome it's got the skin safe technology to help reduce those manscaping mishaps and it's waterproof and it's got a sweet little light on it so if you want to do your below the belt grooming in the shower in the dark well whatever uh puts lead in your pencil i suppose but listeners to this episode actually this entire podcast because they're a sponsor of the show well if you guys go over to www.manscaped.com and enter the code anchor points. That's all one word at checkout. You can get 20% off and free shipping site wide. It's pretty awesome. So once again, go over to www.manscaped.com and enter in the code anchor point. And that's all one word at checkout for 20% off plus free shipping site wide. And ladies, you want to get your guy a pretty ballsy gift? Well, 
Look no further than Nanscaped. Go check them out. The Anger Point Podcast would like to give a quick little shout out to our buddy Booze over at the Ass Movement. And if you guys don't know what the Ass Movement is, well, it is the anti-surface shitting movement. I don't know if you guys have noticed this or not, but there's definitely a serious problem with our public lands and the influx of people defecating on them and not burying it. It's disgusting. In fact, I, uh, I often go fly fishing and every time it's like clockwork, I find a human turd gift wrapped in toilet paper, just not even not even an effort to bury it. It's disgusting and that shit needs to stop. But good for you is you can help spread the poo burying propaganda worldwide if you want to. Go over to www.thefirewild and check out the ass movement and help spread that propaganda with some buttons, stickers, posters. Hell, they even have a turd trowel that you could probably gift to your problem pooper on your crew or one of those problem poopers that you may know. And check this out. Listeners of this podcast can actually get 10% off their entire order by using the code anchorpointass 10 at checkout. Oh, yeah. So it's a good cause and it's propaganda that needs to be spread. So once again, go over to www.thefirewild and check out the ass movement and use that discount code to get all of your ass movements needs met. And last but not least, the Anchor Point Podcast is going to be brought to you by the Smoky Generation, also known as the American Wildfire Experience. And it is a cool ass organization. It basically catalogs and tells the story of wildland firefighting, not only in just the United States alone now. Oh, yeah, it is a global affair, which is pretty freaking awesome. So if you want to go get a trip down memory lane or if you want a little bit of uh, lesson sharing from some peers in the field, look no further than the Smoky Generation. You can find them over. You can find all the stories over at www.wildfireexperience.org and on their socials. And it's pretty easy to find. It's just Smoky Generation or American Wildfire Experience or Wildfire Experience. It's pretty cool. But. In addition to this and storytelling, Bethany over there is giving away some limited amounts of $500 grants. It is pretty bitching. So if you happen to be in the field of wildland firefighting and you happen to tell the story of wildland fire uh, across the globe now, you have a chance to win one of these limited $500 grants. So it doesn't matter if you're a writer, a photographer, a blogger, a cinematographer, if you're telling the story of wildland fire, well, Take your opportunities. I know uh, grant season or the grants have closed for the 2020 season, but 2021 is right around the corner. So look for that coming down the line here soon. Bethany, you have a kick-ass organization. Keep it up. Podcast do not reflect the views and opinions of the United States government, the Department of the Interior, the Department of Defense, the Department of Agriculture, the United States Forest Service, the Bureau of Land Management, National Park Service, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, or any private, municipal, county, or state firefighting organization, any law enforcement agency, any medical provider, or any contractor employed by any federal agency. What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? Hope everybody's doing well. So today on the show, we're going to be talking about, uh, well, let's let's start with story time. How about that? I don't know about you guys, but uh, I've been on a couple of assignments before and I've so happened to stumble across a very illegal marijuana grow on public lands. (laughs) 
I've also stumbled across uh, full, fully legal ones as well. But these illegal ones are what we are going to be talking about today. It's pretty cool, actually. Uh, I didn't know the extent of this problem and I uh, had no idea of the operational hazards that this presents to uh, our wildland firefighters. I mean, you always hear stories about how, yeah, these are dangerous. I mean, the one, the illegal one that I stumbled across had giant fish hooks like uh, deep sea fishing hooks strung about on fishing line at eye level. So that was kind of nice. You know, luckily nobody got hurt and we got the got the hell out of there as fast as possible. But today on the show, we're going to be talking about just that and no better subject matter expert that I can think of besides the man who has written the book on it. Literally. Today on the show, we have got author, special operations game warden, and marijuana eradication eradication team member, Lieutenant John Norris. He's uh, written the book Hidden War and War in the Woods. And if you guys haven't read those already, I highly, highly recommend picking them up. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce my very special friend. Ladies and gentlemen, Lieutenant John Norris. Welcome to the Anchor Point. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Anchor Point podcast. Today on the show, I've got my very good friend, author, <laughs> environmentalist, I guess you could say, Hunter Fisher, outdoorsman, John Norris. John, how you doing, man? Good, Brandon. So good to be on the show, man. Excited for this. It's good to have you, man. I just uh, finished your book and damn, was it eye-opening. Well, thanks for taking the time to read it. Um, I'm, I'm getting that kind of response. And uh, the one thing I am getting that I'll, I'll preface for all our listeners and viewers today is when you see a marijuana leaf on the cover of a book, and you see an operator behind there, you know, in a tactical uniform, and it says the title says "Hidden War." There's kind of a maybe a maybe a misnomer that that's an anti-cannabis book or it's a war on drugs book, and it's absolutely not that. We've gotten a lot of that feedback and response, you know, from the controversy of that whole thing. But uh, it's kind of nice to draw readers in and draw listeners into the issue that it's really an environmental crime fighting book and a protect American public safety book, as you know. Um, which I'm sure we're going to talk about today and many other things, but, but yeah, I'm glad you got to uh, dissect it and go through it and help send a little bit more of the environmental thin green line message that hidden war is trying to do. Oh, absolutely, man. It was a hell of a book and I couldn't put the damn thing down. Like I was saying earlier, my wife is probably getting pissed at me because she was like, hey, let's go watch a movie or something like that. I'm like, no, 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 no. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta I finish, finish this book. This. <laughs> I couldn't put the damn thing down because one thing that struck me was that it was, we, we operate hand in hand, but we never see you. That's the, that's the crazy thing. As far as wildland firefighters go and you guys go, the METs, the MET teams, we operate kind of hand in hand in the same environments, in the same places, but you guys are like ghosts. It's kind of crazy. It's like, I had no idea this stuff was going on until I picked up your book. Yeah, it's it's a different kind of uh, game warden job. It's definitely not traditional. Um, It's definitely not you know, up until recently, it wasn't even that, you know, widely accepted, you know, even within agency, we, you know, it, it's kind of being like a fish kind of out of water doing a weird job and learning to breathe out of water. Um, obviously, I started my career as a game warden way back in 1992, went to Napa Valley College. I know you're a previous California guy, like we were, we were both born and raised there. Um, and when I became a game warden, I was inspired from a game warden I met at Henry Coast State Park, while I was still in college. And while I was an engineering major, um, cause I didn't even know game wardens existed. I was one of those rare guys in our cadet class 
that, you know, I grew up hunting and fishing. I was a total outdoor guy, grandfather, my dad, my uncles. I mean, it was a way of life in California and all over other States, but unlike those guys that were my Academy mates, they had met a game warden and been checked like when they were eight, nine, 10 years old, maybe in their teens. And of course, when you do and love the outdoors, like we do as conservationists, that's a pretty dang cool job. You know, it's one of those things that you're, you're just, I want to be a game warden. I never had that opportunity. And then I meet one in Co Park on a winter break while I'm in the engineering program with my, you know, one of my best friends, Jeff Moore and Baja team uh, racing teammates. And we got a pack horse and we're in the middle of the backcountry on winter break before Christmas, getting our asses soaked in heavy rains. Don't have all the new high tech equipment. I'm fortunate to have now or the knowledge. Right. So we were just dumb <laughs> college kids in the backcountry to, to clear our heads from college and finals and do our thing. And this guy comes into our camp early one morning thinking we had to be poaching black tail deer because trophy black tail deer back in the co-region middle of December. Right. Yeah. No one's hiking that time except dumb guys like us. So he finds out we're just dumb guys like us, dumb college kids. And he's about to leave. And I start asking him like, well, wait a minute, you're not a park ranger. What do you do? And then he tells me what a game warden does. He's out there in a four wheel drive, bro, 14 miles into the backcountry by himself, living out of the steel horse he rides on. And I'm like, holy crap, that is the job I should be doing. That is like my calling. And I really think it was kind of divine intervention because had I not met him, I would be on a completely different career path. I mean, when I started college and, and especially when I met this game warden, I was on the fence of going into an ROTC program for a special forces job in the army. And then I saw this game warden and I saw what was going on and knowing the impact all of our wildlife from poaching and growing up and loving wildlife, I'm like, okay, this is somebody telling me before I go any further down this, this, this lucrative, but very unrewarding from a passionate standpoint, calling standpoint path, I better make a change. And I literally changed my major two days after I got out of the woods on that hike and, uh, and got in and started in 1992. But when I started that job, I thought I would do, and I wanted to do all of the traditional stuff. I wanted to catch people poaching deer out of season, taking too many fish, catch spotlighters at night, guys baiting animals, all of that environmental crime, stream alteration, teach hunter safety to kids, you know, in the next generation, which great part of the job, by the way, one of the highlights had no idea that 15 years in that future, I would be jumping out of Blackhawk helicopters, running with tier one canines, running a sniper unit and hunting cartel growers all over the country, you know, from all over the country in California, just raping our wildlife apart and destroying things. It, it was the furthest thing from my mind at the time. And that's what it morphed into. So you got, yeah, like you said, man, d- divine intervention. Like you took your passion for the outdoors, your passion for hunting, fishing, all this stuff, and you turn it into a greater passion with the special ops kind of background. It, like you just fell into this, like which is very well described in your book. You got the best of all worlds. You got lucky, man. <laughs> Yeah, I really did. I, I consider it um, <clears throat> a huge blessing. I was very fortunate. Um, I had some really, really good leaders and mentors, you know, that were, they were open to new ideas. They were very progressive in the agency way before we really became progressive in this area. Um, I've also had, a, I had an affinity for tactics. I mean, even though I was doing traditional game warden work, I remember me and my good buddy, Mark Imsdahl, you know, who was a, a squad mate of mine in Santa Clara County on the traditional front. Um, we were going to our own sniper schools, you know, going and joining the sheriffs and SWAT teams in the Bay area. And one thing about the Silicon Valley, there's a lot of tier one teams of retired military special forces. There's, you know, special forces units out of Moffett field. 
that we worked with the National Guard and the PJs and third special, seven special forces guys out of the army, even on counter drug later. But at the time, we were in an area working in the urban jungles of California where we could actually go and go to a sniper school. Um, we could integrate into a SWAT school, a carbine school, um, you know, tra- man tracking schools, all of those things that we couldn't got if we, if we were working traditional mountain dream game warden districts. And we were really well received in those, you know, in those schools because we worked hard. We were team players. We were competent on and proficient on the different disciplines we were going into. But I never knew, anticipated we might need those skill sets as game wardens later, but I wasn't sure when. And I'm glad we did all that because we knew someday, somehow, if it wasn't for a marijuana uh, you know, enforcement issue with these cartels, it was going to be for a high-risk warrant team that our agency was going to need because people don't really realize the game wardens do everything and we have jurisdiction that goes everywhere on every type of crime, but our forte and our focus is on wildlife crimes and environmental protection. Uh, but when we get roped into having to do commercial wildlife poaching and a lot of these suspects have extensive criminal records, they're heavily armed. There might be drugs and narcotics involved, uh, gangs and, uh, you know, uh, overseas affiliations and things like that for trafficking issues. Those are very high risk situations to deal with when you've got to serve a search warrant, crash a house, uh, you know, go into a business for prohibited wildlife sales and, and big black market money. And, you know, law enforcement teams are getting thinner and thinner as our populations get bigger and bigger. So from a force multiplying standpoint, we were starting to get into issues where we would have to serve our own warrants. We couldn't ask a local SWAT team to do it on a high risk situation or bring in the sheriff's department or the police. Um, we had to start doing that ourselves. And that was the catalyst. And it just all fell into place that we had, you know, just the right guys. When we, when I was able to handpick guys to test the Met team, as, as you read about in Hidden War, that 2013 three-month window when Chief Mike Carrion said, all right, guys, go do this, test it for three months. And if it's successful, we'll consider making it full-time. Of course, we knew from the environmental impacts this thing needed to be full time. And it was my dream. It was some, my other forefathers, Nate Arnold's dream and the guys that were on the team. It was all of our dream, but we didn't know we were going to be effective enough to really break tradition and have a specialized tactical unit like that. Unfortunately we were, and it, it, it's lasted and it's been very effective. No. And that's the thing too, is like, it's, it's been proven effective. I mean, I've been looking at some of the stats in your book that we'll get into later, but you've <laughs> like, was it 3 million uh, pound, they're not 3 million pounds, 3 million poisoned plants that you guys have basically extracted out of the wildlands. I mean, the numbers show that your team has been wildly effective, man. That's crazy. But your book, Hidden War, you basically did the tell all about this whole operation. Like, explain Hidden War. Let's get into that because we need to give, we need to preface this with your book and how it explains what these MET operators are doing, uh, your experiences and how it kind of got into a very involved aspect and needed to become this very elite tactical unit. Let's talk about your book. Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. It's a very comprehensive one. It's, and there's a lot to go in on the background. And I think for, for everyone listening, the reason I wrote the book is there's, there's kind of multifacets to it. The first reason being is to tell the story, tell the story, not only of a group of game wardens that are doing non-traditional work on, on a, you know, on a, on a specialized tactical unit. That's kind of a one-off, if you will, nationally specifically dedicated to fighting drug cartels from Mexico that are largely the biggest, you know, uh, 
the, the largely the biggest reason why we're having tainted cannabis in our black markets, you know, all across America, even with regulation happening in certain states, um, EPA banned poisons that they put on this weed to keep rodents and insects and people off them. That's on the weed, uh, you know, as it gets into the black market. So people are ingesting carcinogens. They're ingesting nerve agents. They don't even know it. Unsuspecting users and the environmental damages. Um, one thing when you look at all other agencies that were doing some sort of marijuana eradication work way back in the days when we started getting involved, and these are 2003, four, five, when it kind of started, um, the emphasis was on finding these growth sites and eradicating and destroying the plants. And that was it. It was a little bit, some teams were trying to apprehend and arrest these guys, but mostly no one was catching a lot of people because these growers are really skilled. You know, they're living in our woods for six, seven, eight months out of the year. They have escape trails. They know every nook and cranny, how the woods are supposed to sound, animal sounds. So they know in their home for a while, what is right and what is wrong and trying to sneak up on them and catch them effectively and safely when they're armed with knives and with guns and everything else is a very uphill battle unless you've done a lot of it. And we had those, you know, uphill battle moments when we started getting into this, when we'd help the sheriff's office, I was working with Santa Clara County Sheriff, Silicon Valley, as you know, from the book, guys like Brian Boyd were up there making a, a, a real dent with canine Phoebe as she was starting to develop to be that first premier, you know, kind of, kind of cartel eradication team, uh, enforcement team dog, the fur missile, the fur missile. I was about uh, to say it. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And then we had, you know, all guys like Nate Arnold and, and his guys out of the Central Enforcement District in Fresno doing some work, but we were all doing it in different places. And we were all doing it in different ways. And we were all doing it with different tactics and different equipment and different allied agencies. Department of Fish and Wildlife Game Wardens, it was not an enforcement priority for us from an administrative standpoint at the time, because it just wasn't considered or even the depth of environmental crime these guys are doing it really wasn't on our radar. And then in 2005, we started to get involved in camp in 2005, August 5th, as you know, and my, my first book war in the woods chapter two really goes into the gunfight that changed everybody's life. When my partner warden was shot through both legs by an AK 47 and almost didn't survive that ordeal. And we knew when we'd gotten our first gunfight with heavily armed, mentally prepared growers that wanted to stay and fight and not just run away. And, you know, we're getting shot by AK-47 or derivatives thereof, and we're finding sawed-off shotguns and automatic pistols and, you know, camouflage clothing, battle dress uniform type stuff. This was not what enforcement agencies expected in the foothills of Silicon Valley or anywhere else in California. And that's a crazy thing, too, is like this is like people's backyards. This is a populated area that you started encountering these grows. And in fact, that gunfight was just right down the street from a very large population center, which blew my mind. It's like this whole thing is just happening right under your nose, right across the street, basically. Yeah. That's the craziest part about it. I mean, you from a wildland fire standpoint, you guys jump into some really remote country like we do as game wardens where these fires rage and you know, it might be eight, 10, 20 miles from the nearest, you know, main population, even if it's a small town and you're on a two track or you're on a wilderness trail and our, and these cartel growth sites are that far back. But at the same time, like you just said, brother, these are literally sometimes 300 yards behind a $5 million tech industry guru's home in the Saratoga or Silicon Valley or Los Gatos foothills overlooking the tech capital of the world, which is where that gunfight actually happened. It was less than a mile from a main road that 
that is a road in the affluent little suburb of Silicon Valley called Los Gatos. So some of these growth sites are literally right under our noses. They're next to kids' science camps, schools, public hiking trails. Um, the last chapter in Hidmore, as you know, goes into a Santa Cruz County case that was one of the last gunfights, most recent gunfights we've been involved in. Uh, three canine deployment. It was a crazy one, but that growth site looking down at the Pacific ocean at a Santa Cruz in the, you know, in the, in the Silicon Valley foothills, just going into Santa Cruz County, that was a 10,000 plant grow. And a third of that grow site was actually on a kid's science camp called uh, Camp Loma. Holy a shit. Summer camp that was designed for kids to come up to learn to archery shoot, hike, wildlife ID. And by the good graces, these kids during summer, when this grow is going full speed load, you know, right in the middle of pre-harvest and harvest time when we raided it, they never encountered each other, thankfully, or, you know, we could add some really, really bad results there. But, and when you look at a grow site like that, it's kind of a template for almost every grow site we go into. You got Soquel Creek that feeds the Pacific Ocean out of Santa Cruz, one of the last viable migratory streams, waterways for threatened and endangered, federally and state listed endangered species, the steelhead trout, and many other species that these banned poisons, these guys using these growth sites get in those little creeks and it goes straight down to that Creek and it wipes out that fishery. And that was one example. In addition to all those plants being where they are with all those banned toxic poisons on them and those kids being so close to interacting and then Soquel creeks below it, it's a powder keg on every level, environmental, massive destruction, public safety threat. Like we've never seen in our outdoors in America because it's so pervasive and we know how violent they can be six gunfights now and multiple encounters where we almost had one and didn't fortunately because of our, our blessed super canines working for us. Um, this is something the public can run across anywhere. And it's not just California brothers, you know, it's 25 other States for cannabis. Uh, these same cartel groups that are doing this toxically tainted weed production for the black market are involved in methamphetamine production in the winter when they're not growing weed. They're involved in uh, synthetic fentanyl production now and distribution throughout America. They're even, as we're finding out from our allies at the DEA, they're even responsible now for these prescription drug counterfeit lookalike opioids that are made in labs, sometimes in America, but in Mexico right now with COVID especially. Um, they're made in these dirty labs. So one pill could be like a prescription Oxycontin pain relief uh, medication that your doctor would prescribe you after, say, a surgery. And the next pill you get in the bottle is dosed so inconsistently, it's five times more potent and you're dead within minutes of ingestion. So these same groups are doing that, plus human trafficking that's finally getting the attention it needs in the media, on social media, as you and I have seen on many of our follower sites. This human trafficking with kids especially is just, it's disgusting on every level. And these cartel groups are involved in that as another part of their criminal enterprise for money with this tainted weed production. So it's an American problem within our borders from a foreign entity that shouldn't be here that are highly violent and they're, they're, they're not legal citizens anyway. So not an anti-immigration story, but definitely a real threat to the American public and our wildlands and our environment, you know, our environmental resources that are out there. Oh yeah, man. And that's the thing though, is like, could you imagine just like out there, I don't know, you got a black tailed deer tag and you're out there in the hills of California hunting around and then you just happen to haphazardly stumble across one of these grows. You're in a serious, serious fucking situation there because you don't know where these people are and chances are they're not going to let you get out of there. 
because they're going to you're probably going to go tell somebody like, hey, there's a huge marijuana. Guy. There's 10,000 plants like at that uh, children's camp just sitting here. They're growing and they're destroying everything. You got these banned poisons. You got all this shit going on. And this is yeah, yeah you're like your book aptly names. it. It's a hidden war. That's yeah, scary that shit, other, man. That was another reason, brother, to your point, why, why the book, what is hidden war? You know, what does it all mean? Um, one thing it is, it's getting the message out there. And with all the other crap going on in this crazy world, and I'm going to say it's so 2020 now with what we're going through with COVID and with protests and with riots and with the left and the right fringe elements just wanting to kill each other and everything else going on in this world, you know, we still have this problem that is going to be with us long after we settle down politically, we settle down socially, we unify God willing, or we don't. Um, the bottom line is this is a real problem in America. This is a real problem that's just at our Southern border. This is a problem that enemies of our nation would certainly like to see uh, continue because it definitely weakens us internally. It keeps us divisive. Um, obviously the, you know, narcotics addiction and human trafficking and gun running, any violence within America, whether it's in the outdoors or not, is certainly something that's going to hurt our, you know, our population and our, um, our citizenry. But it's one of those subjects that when people find out about it, like you and I do, and when you read the book, they're blown away by it, but they're like, you know, it's been 11 years since the first book was published, bud. War in the Woods dropped right in 2010. And that was right when our agency had just finished filming three years of the National Geographic, the first game warden reality show called Wild Justice on the National Geographic Channel. I and about four or five other guys on the Met team were featured in that show for all three seasons, not only starting to do some of this anti-cartel marijuana work, but doing traditional game warden stuff too. And game wardens have typically been underrepresented in what they do. People think we just check fishing licenses. People think we're park rangers and responsible for locking up a gate at night in a park. And, you know, no disparity to my brother and sister rangers out there because they're working cannabis now too. We're all in it together as part of the thin green line, like you guys on wildland fires are big time. Um, bottom line was people just aren't aware of this. So with three years of a number one hit show on Nat Geo worldwide, multiple documentaries, investigative news pieces, we had been part of a book, you know, the first book that sold all over the world. 10 years later, when Hidden War drops, and I'm at the NRA annual convention in Indianapolis last year, Oliver North was still the president of NRA. He, he was gracious enough to take the time in his busy schedule to read Hidden War, to endorse it. And given his history, both career military and what, and being a big conservationist, not everybody knows this, but Colonel North is an avid hunter, avid conservationist, educating all 18 of his grandkids when they get of age of those, you know, those ethics and that the ethos, if you will. Um, he said, we need to get this out. I didn't know the, you know, the depth of this. Um, I didn't know game wardens were fighting this fight. So he pushed to accelerate, to make sure that book was at the NRA annual. And it was, and long-windedly, my point is everybody in the East Coast come up to my book table at that convention, buying books and dialoguing and sharing information. They would look at me and they'd go, Lieutenant, I had no idea this even existed. I had no idea we had cartels within America working, you know, with impunity and actually in our forests and actually doing all this other stuff. And I said, sir or ma'am, that's exactly why we named the second book Hidden More with my new publisher is this message just needs to get out. And now that I'm retired and there's a great group of game wardens risking their asses every day, going against armed gunmen every day, you know, it's my job now to tell the message, represent them, represent our wildlife and represent our nation's sanctity as it pertains to wildlife resources and public safety. 
more than ever. And that's why we wrote the book and got it out there. And fortunately, we can talk about it freely now that, um, that I am retired and, and can speak on a more national impact level than just hover in what I used to do in California. Well, that's another thing too, that you kind of mentioned there is like with our nation so divided right now, especially with 2020 being the dumpster fire that it is. I've never seen. <laughs> I like that dumpster fire. <laughs> Let's just call it what it is. It's a dumpster yeah. fire. So dumpster fire, all of the above. Well, that's the thing too, is like people still want to go out and hunt. I mean, even though we're politically divided in to a greater degree now, this problem is still happening. And what worries me is that the influx of the, or the, the dividedness of our country right now is going to provide a lot more opportunity for these DTOs, these drug trafficking organizations to come in and establish more roots because we're so distracted I work in the wildland or used to work in wildland for 11 years. I've seen illegal grows before. I've seen the kind of booby traps and shit that they put up to deter people from coming in. And this affects my people, my, my wildland folks. And not only that, it affects my, my family. We're a bunch of hunters and fishermen and outdoorsmen. We like to hunt camp, all that stuff. It's a huge problem and it's not exclusive to California alone. This is all any climate basically that you can grow marijuana. This is a potential threat. So it serves as a good warning to the general public that this is a huge problem, but it also worries me that this problem could increase. Yeah. You you hit it on the head there, brother. When you talk about um, the problem, not going away and actually being inflamed for lack of a better word right now through COVID, Um, something we saw when COVID dropped and it was really nationally uh, a problem, uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong about mid-March. And I remember migrating, I was, I was in California doing some work and some consulting and whatnot and integrating with my, my met team, the the guys still in the fight. And I remember packing up to leave California, um, probably permanently didn't know if I'd ever end up going back, depending on what happened with this pandemic, um, and racing to get up here. And being in contact with my teammates constantly throughout the first couple months of COVID. And the one thing that was overwhelmingly uh, the general rule is grow after grow after grow after grow. We're getting seen and spotted by our guys out doing individual scouts. But we couldn't get together as a team to effectively fight it because of COVID protocol, not only with being around each other, but to have an exposure issue with a cartel grower that who knows what exposure he's had. If he's come across multiple borders, if he's from Honduras, is he from central Michoacan? Is he from Mexico? Is he embedded just, you know, running around uh, multiple cities in California? Nobody knew. So basically federally and at the state level, all those teams, including ours, were just shut down for months. Yet we were finding grow after grow after grow and just hovering. Yeah. And so by the time we could start working and getting in there and going and tackling these grows, half a grow season was already behind us, Right. And the cartel knew that and they know that. And when, even when we're green lit and we can start going out and starting to do some operations and start to clean out these growth sites, we're still dealing with riots. We're still dealing with, you know, uh, COVID issues all over medically where we might have to integrate and jump in with allied agents, law enforcement agencies for evacuations with the, the wildfires that hit California like crazy. And I know our mutual buddy Prane that was just on your show and, He was actually down in Morgan Hill at the main Cal Fire station in incident command when I was in Cali, staying in touch with me in real time while I'm watching the Co-Park backcountry where I met that game warden, 100,000 acres of Co-Park, my alma mater that changed my life where I learned everything about the outdoors up in smoke for the first time in over a century. 
And now I'm working with Cal Fire and going back in there and working with their ranchers for access and evacuations and just trying to see what's left. But on that sidebar, everybody was dealing with fire evacuation. Everybody was dealing with fire response, including our game wardens in a COVID year. So what are the cartels doing in every part of California that's not burned to the ground? They're going, party on, Garth. We're good to go. <laughs> it's free for There's all. nobody coming. You know, and if they aren't in the outdoors, they're integrating into some of these indoor operations or on these private property tracks where a quasi legal grower might have a recommendation or an approval for certain plants he can grow or she can grow under the new regulations. But this, you know, this crew of cartel growers come in, they pay a kickback to a not so up and up landowner. And now they're doing a full blown polluted grow with toxic chemicals under the auspice of a legal growth site that might not see any enforcement action because we got a thousand more public safety issues in the immediate presence that we got to deal with. So it, it has been a shit show from that standpoint, but I can say this, the last couple of months, our Met boys have been rocking it hard and our new dogs have been like on overtime 24 seven, making the dents. Um, can't really arrest people right now. The jails aren't taking new patients or they're not taking new, you know, in custodies for whatever reason. Um, obviously COVID being that biggest reason, but the bottom line is we're getting the product out of the woods. So this stuff doesn't make it into the black market and doesn't poison consumers because in a state that regulates cannabis, where we want to see it done purely and organically, where if you're going to, you know, use cannabis, use it from a legitimate source that doesn't have pesticides or poisons. It's a pure product and definitely don't want to get it from a source that's implicit in destroying our environment and hurting our public members. Oh, absolutely. So as far as these cartels go, I mean, is it exclusive to the Mexican uh, or like drug cartels basically, or is it primarily that, or is it everybody? Like I know there's several other cartels. I mean, who yeah, is it primarily? See, yeah. And that's a question I don't get asked too often, you know, cause my, our, our focus really is on the biggest impact, which 90 percent ish, give or take, I can't put a, a solid number on it, but you know, realistically 90% of the stuff we're dealing with on the trespass tainted banned poison, tainted cannabis production for the black market is multiple different cartels out of Mexico. You know, it started with the derivative of the Sinaloa, LFM, La Familia, La Familia Michicana way back in the day. And there's been so many splinter cells with the infighting and all the cartel wars going on in Mexico that, you know, there's multiple new cartels that have been around within the last 10 years, some within the last five years. And some of them have a different piece of the pie, but it's primarily dealing with that cartel element or what we call drug trafficking organizations, transnational criminal organizations. There's different enforcement proper terms for it, but it ultimately boils down to what we traditionally in the public know as cartel cells. Um, we have other people involved though, too. We have gangs, domestic gangs, you know, the Norteños, the Serenos, uh, different groups, Russian mob. Um, you know, you get actually, yeah, Russian no mobs shit. have come over and they've gotten involved in the cannabis trade. They've gotten involved in the commercial poaching of sturgeon for sturgeon row, basically the eggs within a sturgeon, abalone, you know, wildlife trafficking, um, you know, you get Romanian influence, you get, uh, Russians, especially, like I said, so, and we're starting to see some of the Asian groups coming in, Asian gangs, Chinese factions coming in and finding them in grow sites or in these quasi private land, semi-legal or under the auspice of being legal grow sites going on. And it's run by business men and or crime families from China. So there are different elements involved in this game because 
if you look at California and you look at America right now, and you especially look at the weed state in California, we call it the weed state because it's one of six true Mediterranean climates on the globe, meaning that we can grow outdoor weed from pretty much February to almost Christmas in most parts or some parts of the state. And just like fine wine and the wine industry and all the good grapes we grow in California, we grow really good cannabis in California. And so there is a business venture for international uh, interests, whether it be the Chinese, whether it be the black market Russians, obviously the cartels from south of the border, you name it. Everybody wants to get in on the green rush right now that's happening, especially with California as a template for the rest of the country. And so that compounds the problem of what we got to deal with and just look at this objectively and, and just try to protect what we can. So there's another question that uh, kind of kind of came up when you're when you're talking about this. Now, are these different elements, these different DTO elements, are they working with each other? Say like one cartel is working with what some of these Chinese or Russian elements to, I guess, accelerate their their network, if you will. Is that kind of confirmed or is that? It is. It is. They are working together. Not all the time. Um, it just kind of depends on what cells work in a particular area. Um, a question that gets brought up a lot. And I'm glad you asked that question because I would have forgot to mention this is we hear about all the cartel infighting down in Mexico, all the murders with, you know, cartel wars between each other and then all the complicit witnesses and everybody else that's murdered. And right now in the state of the world, the murder rate right now, and I get daily updates, is just off the hook in Mexico. And, you know, 90 plus percent of that is cartel generated. Now, in America, fortunately for us, there's a lot less of that cartel violence where they're gunning for each other or doing open range wars, say, in the grow sites in the woods. Much, much less of it because it's just bad business to try to draw that kind of attention to yourself in America, given the fact that we're going to deal with that. Um, obviously, they want to make money you know, and they want to stay insulated and they don't want to be cut, cut out or any of their operatives taken out of circulation so they can continue to make that money and stay effective. So they tend to play mostly nice with each other up here. Um, but not all the time we do see, uh, the Chinese, we do see the domestic Mexican gang members. We do see business agreements where they will work for each other. Um, depending on who's running the grow site, they'll basically sublet or they'll contract out for some guys to do growing, processing, trimming, distribution, you know, different levels of that where they will agree to work together for the greater good. So they don't bring anything negative to any of their organizations. But at times we do see turf wars. Um, we have seen shallow graves in grow sites. We have seen mysterious, uh, you know, dead growers assassinated in grow sites and you don't know exactly why, but obviously there was something within the organization that went awry. Maybe the trust factor was gone. Maybe somebody was on the take or whatever gunshots are heard and you got somebody dead on the fringes of an edge of a grow that might've been a faction uh, cartel group might've been infringing on their territory or another grow site where they were working too close to, or it could have been something where the employees Compared to the big bosses, things just weren't lining up and somebody had pulled something or was suspected of pulling something and they had to be taken out and an example set. So we see a lot of different variances of this kind of violence, but at a far lesser extent than the cartel war going on in Mexico right now. I gotcha. That, that's, you brought up an interesting point though, is like these guys are highly armed and they're very skilled within the environment that they work in. And you guys as the Met operators, the Met team, 
uh, marijuana enforcement team, uh, getting lingo there instead of using acronyms. <laughs> I'm so used to working for the government. I got to remember to say what yeah, acronyms. We, we always throw our acronyms out and forget to describe them. Yeah. But I got to, I got to keep in mind that the public does listen to this too. So, so DTOs, drug trafficking organization, trespass grows and legal marijuana grow or drug operation on public land. And then you have MET, which is the marijuana enforcement team, which you were a part of. You helped yep. bring to, I guess you help bring that up as it is now. Um, but back to the original question is you brought up something. These, these, these cartels are super heavily armed and they're well-versed in the tactics of the wildland. And you guys had to kind of meet and exceed that level of operations. So as far as the gear, the tactics, the canine units, you guys had all of it. It was out of necessity too, because you guys, just like you were saying, that first encounter with a DTO, you guys were ambushed, and one of your guys didn't almost didn't make it out alive. Yeah, and uh, when when Kyle got shot in two thousand five, we were a long way from having anything formalized. But I I don't know that I had a conscious thought at that point that this was going to be the goal to get a team like this to handle this safer and be more effective. Um, but it was definitely it was definitely in my subconscious, for lack of a better word. And I was so shaken up by that event of almost seeing my partner warden who's first year on the job and one of our best game wardens in the agency almost die in my arms, die of shock while he's bleeding out for three and a half hours waiting for an air rescue. You know, there's a helpless feeling, man. I mean, it was a real helpless feeling because we could attract and caught the other guys that were involved, but we were a team of six. And when Kyle went down, we were a team of five. That was too small of a team, but nobody knew that at the time because no one had had that type of attack before. Um, agencies, how to respond to that administratively with air support, with incident command. I mean, that was, that was the early stages of this whole game being, uh, underway, if you will. And that was a real shakedown. That was a real shakedown of what worked and what didn't work. And, you know, one of the things I do all over the country now, and what I've been doing since that, that gunfight happened is doing a PowerPoint presentation on lessons learned and debriefing, not only that shooting, but three more that we've had since then of what tactics were changed, what equipment was gained, what notification protocol and incident command system and air assets and medical response and trauma medicine training. All of those things come out as you see this progression through these gunfight officer involved shooting incidences with these cartel growers of how safer we get how more efficient we get at the job and heaven forbid, if we ever have to take that level of deadly force again, which we're trying to avoid, but given the violence that we're encountering, we don't have a choice um, coming out of it safely and stopping the problem from occurring any further, at least in that incident. Um, in the early days, there were a lot of mistakes made because it wasn't for lack of good knowledge and good tactics and good practice and good motivation. It was ignorance to the depth of the problem. We just hadn't had that threat really in our faces yet. And during the 05 shooting, we did. So, you know, from there until 2013, buddy, when we got the green light from Chief Mike Carrion to put the pilot program together and test a hand-picked specialized unit for three months, um, there was a lot of informal growth going on. There were all of us that were kind of specializing in this, like I mentioned a little earlier, Brian Boyd and Canine Phoebe up north and a bunch of the rest of us spread out all over the Fresno Central District region and us in the Silicon Valley that were really informally becoming a team just divided by districts. And when we could bring all 12 of those guys together and bring the two good dogs into the mix, and we didn't have to worry about collateral duties of routine patrol and having district responsibilities and could just focus on this, 
when you have those type of personalities and that type of motivation and, you know, the gloves come off, it was, it, I was elated. It was a dream come true. I was in the last six years of my career and to see this happening the way it was and making the environmental dent, we always wanted it to. Um, I mean, obviously hunting really bad, angry, dangerous people in Amer on American soil that are destroying our wildlife and, and threatening our public. It feels real good to hunt those guys down. Not going to lie, man. I do miss that part of it. The one thing I do miss about the job is being with my brothers and doing bad guy hunts because every guy we caught was a danger to thousands of people. If they ever run across them and the, and the decimation he was personally responsible for doing to our waterways, to cannabis consumers, to our wildlife, to tracts of pristine land. It was exponential. So every guy we caught, we felt like it mattered, no matter how arduous it was, no matter how many we didn't catch. And now I look at all what it took to get there, and I'm just grateful we got there. I'm grateful we're continuing to fight that fight. And I'm grateful we're learning all the positives and negatives of things like regulation and legalization. And does it help or hurt the black market? Are we doing the right thing legally? You know, some, some of the stuff we've discussed uh, before the broadcast and things we're going to dive into. This doesn't really have anything to do with narcotics. It doesn't have anything to do even necessarily with cannabis. It's not about cannabis, good or bad. It's about what this black market and what people's motivations are doing to harm our wildlife, to harm our public safety. And when we look at it from that realm, we need to regulate it for that reason. Oh, absolutely. And that's one thing that uh, was very well pointed out in your book too, is like, it's especially when people were going to court, you'd bust these guys, these people, you would send them to court and they didn't give a shit about the drug charges typically, right? which, right. which kind of blew my mind because you know, they're in interfering on public land. This is a federal crime now because you guys have the ability to operate on federal land and state land, private land, etc. You guys have basically carte blanche to operate on whatever land, whoever owns land. But what really struck the deal with a lot of these prosecutors is the environmental crimes. And that was kind of something that surprised me. Yeah, that was, I called that the, you know, that was the, um, the golden goose, right? That was the secret weapon that if we were going to go out and do these bad guy hunts and risk our lives and, you know, possibly take fire or get our dog stabbed or, or any of those risks that happen when you go up against this type of element, eradicate all these plants and go into say Santa Cruz County that, you know, it has a very simple, sympathetic jury pool. And they're looking at this as a cannabis case with all the other big, you know, hot button items that their courts are facing. And they're like a marijuana case, really? And there's a specialized team running around with all this training and all this tactics and the money it must've cost and what other duties it pulled you from and all these different things. Why are we in court? What are we going to, why would, who's going to convict these guys? And then you start showing them the four or five deer that died, a you know, a horrible death from chemicals that basically work as nerve agents and have some of the same ingredients that the Nazis developed during their bioweapons development back in the forties. Yeah. This is shit that's been um, banned in the United States for quite a long time. The carbofurans. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Carbofuran, what, what Brandon, we're looking at 20 years deep. This stuff is banned in the U S from being used when it was diluted with thousand gallons of water on our, our personal agriculture. And these growers are putting a bottle of Ferdinand in a five gallon pump bucket sprayer what dilution level is that? I mean, that's crazy. And, and spraying it all over the plants, all over the soil, it's in the water, it's everywhere. And when I don't care where you sit on the cannabis spectrum or where you sit on the political spectrum, left or right, 
when you start seeing pictures in a jury trial of a 400 pound mother black bear that's laying on the side of a tree, the base of a tree dead with a frothed out mouth and her baby 50 pound cub, it's in the V in the tree that climbed up the tree above her, terrified that the mother bear died and couldn't figure out what mama just went through and then ingested the same poisons. And this little baby bear is in the tree and dead, just hanging there. And I have photos of that. And I show those photos to everybody, animal rights groups, conservative conservation groups, liberal conservative groups, cannabis grower groups. And when you see the reaction, it is the most unifying reaction I've ever seen with this country so divided as we are now. Everybody agrees wildlife and wild lands and waterways are they're a spiritual sanctuary. They are. Whether you hunt or fish or not, whether you've been a wildland firefighter or a game warden or run around in the woods where you and I really find our center, even if you haven't done that, even if you've been raised on an Xbox or PlayStation 5 and you're living in downtown San Francisco or New York, um, you go to a city park and you sit there and just breathe some fresh air for a minute with the noise level drops, you automatically feel a level of calm, right? Oh, yeah. So even if you haven't had that exposure to wildlife, we react to animals dying a heinous death in a very negative way. It disturbs all of us. And that's exactly the message we're trying to get across. Let's agree to disagree on everything else. Let everybody have their opinion. That's the beautiful part about this great nation. But let's agree. This is a foreign threat that is decimating things that affect all of us and harming us directly. And this is why it has to stop. And that's really why a tactical unit of our caliber and the training and the weaponry and the tactical equipment and the time away from home. That's why basically as some of my SEAL team buddies say, you're kind of like a domestic SEAL team six because you don't report to any one, one district, you know, you go everywhere, anywhere you need to go without any restrictions and you're equipped and trained to do every possible job you could do in the wildlands of California, whether you're at 13,000 feet below Mount Whitney at high altitude, because we've got gross sites up there that have directly poisoned and killed the threatened and endangered Sierra bighorn sheep. No joke. Holy shit. Had, oh, yeah. And we've had gross sites literally on the edge of, you know, within a couple, couple quarter miles from the ocean, the high desert, the mountains, the Sierras, scrub brush, uh, coastal woodlands all over California. So, you know, when our sniper team was built, when our MET team was built, you see us doing a lot of very next level activities and training from mountaineering to rappelling to on water tactical training with our boat crews to aerial stuff. Like that Delta uh, mission yeah, that you guys performed. Doing all of it. And yeah. And like in the book, there's a lot of pictures to that, but that was all done so that we could go into any part of California or any other state for that matter, if we're helping out and do whatever job was required of us up to five, six, seven days unsupported, just like our domestics, uh, a foreign, you know, military special forces unit, for all the right reasons. And now that people are seeing what we're doing, and as you said, when you see the numbers we were putting up and the, the statistics of what one team has done, it all starts to make sense. And it's just another part of the thin green line of game wardens that are doing non-traditional work, but we're part of a big team of what all of us do on the game warden front. We're not any more important or less important than guys working patrol districts, gals working Marine patrol, wildlife trafficking, uh, public outreach and education, and, and now cannabis enforcement, which almost one fourth of all the game wardens in California are dealing with on, on some team of one sort or another. Damn. Well, that's another thing too, is speaking of uh, the environmental crimes and these 
these poisons, these carbofurans and shit, you guys are taking on a lot of risk as well. And especially your canines, man, all all three of the dogs that you worked with, all three of the fur missiles that you worked with have passed away from incurable cancers. Yeah. It's it's been, uh, it's one of those, it's heartbreaking brother. It's one of those eye openers where, you know, we can't prove that the dogs, that some of those dogs died specifically from those growth poisons. Um, we're, we're pretty confident though, given what we've seen. Um, obviously the last couple of years, we've done a lot better, not only with PP for ourselves on the federal and state level, but of really protecting our dogs in these growth sites. The fact that they're running around with unprotected feet and their paws are all over soils and water when we're on an apprehension going through growth sites that may or may not have that soil content absolutely, you know, covered in this stuff is an issue. Um, certainly we lost, you know, canine Zoe was barely over a year and a half old. She wasn't even quite two years old yet. Had one operational, uh, season in the field working kind of hand in hand and under a, you know, a, a real, uh, you know, prodigy, like, uh, you know, being a prodigy kind of, uh, like canine Phoebe. Um, and then all of a sudden she gets leukemia and, and a cancer out of the blue and she's dead six weeks later. And she comes from an exceptional breeder with no pedigree of disease, healthy as a horse, no pun intended. And all of a sudden our canine handler, Nick just loses that dog. And we, you know, and we feel that loss on the team after having one good season with her. Um, several other dogs with other teams have had the same thing. Uh, we lost canine Phoebe who made it to almost 12 or 13 years old after her crazy, incredible career. Um, she did end up dying of cancer of a leukemia uh, could that have been from grow poisons? Maybe. Um, but she definitely at least lived her entire, you know, operational career, which for her was a lot longer than most dogs. She was in the field, literally on her last bike deployment at 12 years old. And for a Belgian male, a shepherd or any type of dual purpose apprehension dog, that's, that's kind of a dog with like not nine lives, but like 12 lives. You know, she, <laughs> she went a lot more years brother than most dogs do, but we lost her to cancer too. So was it attributed to all our grow work? It might've been could have been, or she might've just got lucky and, and not got hit by it until the very end. But, but yeah, that's something we're looking at on the operational front and other agencies are too, and protecting our dogs as much as we protect our officers. Cause these dogs are, they're our brothers and sisters. Well, they're also hypercritical to your mission too. I mean, there's even one part in the book where you sat, you apprehended a, uh, one of these cartel operatives, sat him next to a tree and he started to get up to run away. And Phoebe turns around and it's just like stares at him and just gives him, gives him the hard stares. Like, don't you motherfucker move. It's yeah. I I own you now. And, uh, yeah, you've already hurt my people. So yeah, yeah, we've, we've had that. And I chapter two, especially in Hidmore goes into, that 2012 case where Brian and I had been working together and keep in mind, this is before the Met team was, was a unit and we were all one team. We were still working districts and hodgepodge in the special ops side. And I was able to borrow Brian and Phoebe for one of many missions down in the Silicon Valley with my brothers from the marijuana eradication team of the Santa Clara County Sheriff's office. And, and I was Brian's canine cover and without giving away everything in that chapter, uh, I had to handle a suspect that Phoebe was biting while Brian was going hands-on with that bad guy's partner who was pulling a big old Taurus judge revolver out of his holster. And Brian couldn't wait for the dog to get off the first guy and just said, John, take my dog. He went to handle the other bad guy and all these riflemen and support elements around us were, you know, a couple 20, 30 yards back trying to catch up. Couldn't close the distance that quick. Yeah. 
Yeah, it is at that, you know, given the, given the relationship. And I remember, I remember seeing Phoebe on that bite and this guy struggling. And I remember him being tough. He wasn't crying and screaming like most of them are. He was just kind of taking it. Yeah. Grunting and groaning belly on the ground. And I'm running to close the gap, close the gap, close the gap. And I'm just, just starting to dive at the back end of his feet to start to tackle as he's starting to get up. And I see the Russian Torkarov pistol coming out from his waistband. Oh shit. And that gun was in his waistband the whole time. And he had started to pull it and he started to turn it on me. And if he had not been under the bite duress of that amazing dog, I would have taken a shot from three, four or five feet away. And the guys behind me, the rifleman with the sheriff's office coming up to cover me would have been in that line of fire and or a target themselves. And so I had never been with Phoebe and Brian where we had actually had to engage a suspect before until that day, even though we had done multiple missions together. And man, I cannot tell you how much the light bulb went off, how crazy my mind was spinning. And we were code four, which basically, as you know, for our audience means safe and sound. And we were starting to process the scene. I went about 50 yards up the hill and got on my cell phone. And I called Chief Nancy Foley, who was overseeing the whole agency and really supportive of our efforts. And Mike Carrion, who was Brian's district chief at the time before he became badge number one later. And I said, guys, I can't believe what just happened. We almost had another gunfight. We avoided one. Phoebe needs to be on every, every grow raid we do. Or if she can't be on every one, then we need to get more dogs that can. And seven months later, we were doing a pilot program. I mean, the writing was on the walls of how you said, brother, how amazing these canine partners are to not only saving our lives, but keeping suspects alive. I mean, this is one of those things where people think these dog bites are so ferocious and vicious. And how could you ever bite a guy in the woods? You know, can't you talk them down and this and that, you know, you get that side of the argument. Uh, These people are trying to kill you. I said, the bottom line is these guys are pulling guns to hurt us, to kill us, to kill our dogs. There's no, we're past the point of negotiation. We're past the point of talking people down and walking out peacefully. You know, we certainly always want that, but it doesn't happen that way, especially with this element, given our experience. However, I can tell you this, that that guy might have a torn up calf or torn up shoulder. He might've bled a little bit. He might hurt. You know, he might have stiffness and soreness the rest of his life, but he's alive. He's not going to be dead. Yeah. He's, he's not going to have a bullet hole in him. He doesn't have a bullet hole in him, brother. And mo- and just as importantly, I'm alive and my partner's alive and the dog's alive. So everybody is alive, you know, because someone decided to use deadly force and put us in a position as law enforcement officers. And we had no other choice. So these dogs are amazing. I can't speak highly enough of them. And that's why Hidden War is a canine heavy book. Um, and you know, the sad parts about it, having read it when we start losing these dogs, especially when Phoebe passed, it still, still chokes me up, man. Um, and, uh, we got great dogs. I can't go into details on who they are, what they are, but our dogs are doing great work on the Met front. Other agencies have followed in, in our footsteps and our canine handlers have seen Phoebe in action. And we've been very lucky to work with other agencies that have gotten similar dogs and we've saved them from the growing pains we went through and the training hiccups to get their dogs and help them get their dogs online quicker and more effective, faster on these missions. But it's been a, been quite a journey on the canine front. Oh yeah, man. That's it's, it's crazy how, how much you rely on these animals, you know, man's best friend, 
even if they're just like, they're not an operations dog or apprehension dog, you know, they still, I've got a huge passion for dogs. I got two dumb golden retrievers that are pretty much useless, but I love those two idiots. I got a a little retired English lab here that was eight years, my partner. And now she's quasi retired too at 11 (laughs) years old. So yeah, I love them retrievers. Oh yeah. So what about these kingpins that you've taken down? Because you've taken in your book, I'm not going to go into too much detail because I want people to read it, of course, but you've taken down a couple kingpins. Now, how dangerous are these people? Because there was a murder case, there's these grows, there's all sorts of shit attached to these people. What was that like apprehending these people and finally building that case to take these assholes down? You know, it's some of the most rewarding work you can do because you know how dangerous they are to other people if they're out of, you know, if they're in circulation doing whatever criminal enterprise they're involved in. Um, in the case of the book without giving it away. Yeah, we did. We had a Silicon Valley kingpin that had been involved in, um, uh, actively involved in a, in a DTO a drug traffic organization, cartel related, and, you know, had a lot of cartel growers and gunmen working for him and, um, had a, a quite affluent, had his hands in a lot of different grows, not only in the old Silicon Valley area where I'm from, but other parts of the state. And, you know, to this day, could have been involved in multiple other cartel crimes, too, that we've mentioned before. Um, But the fact that he was so ambitious and so adamant, he didn't want anybody upsetting his operation, that he would literally, you know, murder or put out or hire or allege or threaten neighbors and anybody that got in his way of interfering with, um, you know, an environmental crime that was really cartel cannabis related tells you how dangerous someone like that is. And to actually, you know, see them get in and out of jail for various reasons. And then to get them at the, you know, kind of when our teams are starting to really integrate, especially, and that was a Santa Clara County Sheriff's case we're talking about that, that I think is the first chapter that we highlight in, uh, in hidden war, but getting to be part of that operation and get him where he thinks he's completely insulated and get him on environmental crimes as well as the public safety crimes that he can't get out of that he's that is that are going to get addressed in court no matter what type of attorney or what type of resources he has or what games he plays in court um that's a great feeling you know because certainly we make a dent when we catch the on-site grower you know the armed gunman during harvest time but those are not the top dog players by any means those are soldiers in an organization with grow bosses that are much higher up that are overseeing much larger operations. And he was one of those guys. And, uh, that, that always feels good. And we don't, we don't, you know, you don't get the opportunity to catch and hold on to many guys like that, uh, in this type of work, unfortunately, cause they are so insulated. Oh, absolutely, man. And it's got to be really wildly fulfilling to take these guys down because like I said, man, it not only poses a risk to the public, our wildland firefighters, and also yourself, the fingering line, the uh, MET operators and the game wardens, state game wardens. It's, it's got to be wildly fulfilling to take down like the head honcho of this from the top down, because if I don't know if that's going to create a power vacuum or anything, which it probably will, but it still has got to be, you know, it's one, one little thing out of the equation. It's got to be fulfilling. Yeah, we, we certainly know, you know, everybody's expendable, uh, you know, and, and everything in, in most facets of life on some level, and there is someone else to come take a place. But the one thing we know when we do something like that, especially when it's happening in country, in American borders, when you get that type of individual out of circulation from continuing those crimes, a lot of stuff stops, you know, and a lot of stuff immediately that you were dealing with in your backyard really stops because 
it just can't physically be done when that whole operation is not only raided and eradicated and stopped, but you've got the top grow boss and now you've got all his henchmen, all his growers, all his people in custody. And that was one of those operations that when we did all the raids after a, a couple of year investigation, um, in a two week period, we literally caught everybody involved, which never happens. I mean, all eight guys in three different grows simultaneously raided with three different raid teams I mean, with Murphy's law and, you know, from wildland fires, man, with ops, anything that can go wrong is going to go wrong. And you just inevitably D or P ends up making it. And, you know, on met, we have a term fill and flow, just have a great op plan. And as soon as you get to a wall, because it didn't work out in the op plan, how do you fill and flow around that wall? What's our next contingency? That's exactly um, what we were anticipating, what we were really uh, anxious about on that mission, on that operation. And everything worked out. We had hiccups, but we caught everybody. And I think that's probably one, one to five to 10 times at the most in my career that that's ever happened. So that one felt really good. It was worthy of being a, a starter to the book of really showing teamwork, really showing what it means to be part of not only a conservation agency and have a good team, but what it is to work with allied agencies, with firefighters, with sheriff's deputies, with DEA agents, with BLM rangers, with forest service rangers, national park rangers. And you really find out, man, outside of the shoulder patch looking a little different. We're all part of the thin green line. We really are. We care about our wildlife or wildlife and our wild lands. We're adamantly passionate about protecting, you know, our resources out there. You guys on the firefighting front, I can't thank you enough for the risks you take. And to preserve and protect and, you know, keep not only property and, and structures and humans safe, but also to manage how certain wildland areas that are destroyed from a fire, how we bring them back. And, you know, having a sister that just recently retired from a career San Jose fire, she was a, retired as a, one of the youngest captains, um, but she spent 13 years on the ground um, doing everything. She started in wildland fire in those foothills where we grew up in that co-park district area. So, you know, my hat's off to what you guys are doing on the thin red line, but ultimately I think we all bleed a little bit of green. I like to say, and uh, we're all part of it. And this, this thing with these cartel cells is just did. It's an attack on our thin green line in America and we can't fight it alone. You can't fight it alone. And one of the best things we do and what I'm grateful for you doing with such a great podcast platform and what I'm really blessed to do in retirement, what I call phase two is tell the story, educate people and bring resources and support to the issue and awareness, because in that way, we'll fight it more effectively. And we're, and all of us that are on the outreach front need to be doing that because our law enforcement and our firefighters can't do it alone. Um, completely low numbers, as you know, compared to the, the, the depth of the problem going on out there. Oh, absolutely. And that's an interesting thing that we were talking uh, about before we started rolling on the episode, but you had to operate with Cal fire and your federal wildland firefighting counterparts as well, quite often. So let's talk about that. Like how does this affect wildland fire? Obviously I've been on, I've, I've come across grows and I've like, I've seen, I've seen the big ass fish hooks that they hang at eye level with hundred pound test fishing line. They booby trap these, these grow sites and it's extraordinarily dangerous. I've had actually one of my buddies up in Oregon said they were being shot at by yep potential illegal grow. They didn't want to go any further, of course, and investigate because it's one, it's not their fucking job. And two, it's dangerous. They're going to, they could potentially die doing this. But all too often you hear about these people coming across grows, illegal grow sites, these trespass grows, 
uh, or you see suspicious activity out in the woods or hell, even sometimes fires are created by these DTOs and these trespass growth sites. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that I think outside of us and hunters and anglers, you guys on the firefighting front find these trespass grows more than just about anybody. And uh, I'm going to speak from some California experiences working with Cal Fire with our state wildland guys and also our Forest Service wildland guys in Northern California. Um, they would not only run across grows, but they would see the booby traps. They had experienced, you know, being shot at. I remember during the Los Padres uh, National Forest, Monterey County specifically, going back about four or five years, uh, it was the middle of the summer. It was fire season in California. And, you know, brother, we're, we're all over the place on the Met. We're together on one mission. Then we're, you know, we're, we're two or three of us on one mission. Well, four or five of us are on another, just running hot every day, sometimes five, six, seven days a week. And I remember we, uh, we got tipped off to a grove from you guys on the Cal fire front because that fire campaign was getting pretty big and burning toward the coast. And some Cal fire dozer operators were up there cutting some pretty critical fire breaks and they got pretty close to a cartel grow. And here comes some growers and they just start shooting at the blade of the dozer and start shooting at the dozer and the dozer has to lock up and stop. And the, you know, the operators are like, screw this. We're done here. We can't go any further back out. And that area basically just burned. There was no way with sheriff support or us going in there, we were able to clear that out. The fire was far too close. We couldn't risk being in there for our safety. Um, I remember several grows, and this is still happening, where um, we, uh, you guys find it during a fire campaign in an area that's not burned, report it, and as soon as the fire campaign is kind of done, we will go in and kind of clear it out. And in Santa Clara County, we had several of those that were found that had booby traps that had some guns and ammunition left behind and the growers had bugged out, but we had this completely dangerous site with all this weaponry that any of the public could have run across on, you know, Santa Clara County parks, property, Santa Clara, open space, Henry coast state park property, you name it. Um, the, the big fire campaign in co park, that was one of the biggest wildfires of all of them that were going on in California just a couple months ago. I remember when that burned and that really started ripping four days before that, we had done two raids in there with the state park rangers who now have their own marijuana team that we've uh, collaborated with, which they've needed for state park personal land. Um, and the Santa Clara County Sheriff's Met team had hit two rows within a couple of days in that area before that whole, whole area burned out. Jeez. Those rows we can't say were caused by the growers or those fires rather, but I do know of the several fires, the Los Padres fire, some fires up in Northern California toward El Dorado County and stuff definitely had links to being caused by cartel grow groups running a propane stove or something like that, or maybe smoking cigarettes or whatever in a complete powder keg of fuel conditions. And next thing you know, you have a multi-thousand inferno. So it's, it's something you guys see a lot of that we see a lot of there's, there's a connection there and it's another threat these guys pose. Oh, absolutely. And another threat that that poses too, is like, like you're saying those uh, booby traps and all the other stuff that goes along with it. So, as, as someone who's well-versed in these DTO trespass grow operations, what do we need to look forward or look for? Like, what are some of the warning signs? What are some of the things to look out for? And what do we do if we encounter one of these grows? Obviously, to turn tail and get the hell out of there is one of those options. But what do you do? What do you look for? Yeah, the biggest thing is, is just um, looking for what we call target indicators. So anything that looks out of the ordinary. And before you even get to a grow site... 
you might see something like a half inch or one inch black poly pipe, which is just a black water pipe. Anytime you see something like that in the woods on a hillside in a canyon or especially along a creek or in a waterway, that is a red flag, red alert. We got to grow somewhere that's not supposed to be here. That this water line is eventually, and it could be 50 yards away around the corner in the brush, or it might be two miles away. We've tracked some of these water lines, no joke, Brandon, two or three miles across county lines to get a water supply to a grow site. But when you see something like that, know what you're into, take a photograph, get a GPS coordinate, and uh, back the heck out if you can, um, and report it immediately. So as soon as you can get to your phone, call the sheriff's department, call a fish and game warden, uh, whatever the case may be that you might have a grow site in play. The other thing anglers find, hunters find, backpackers, equestrians find a lot is they'll stumble into a grow site that's not active and it doesn't have plants in it, but it has all the active uh, infrastructure, tents, setting everything up, propane stoves, you know, a kitchen area, a trash pile, because, you know, until these things are raided and busted, if they even are reclamated, not every team reclamates like we do and actually cleans up the damages. Um, that is considered a viable resource for more profits next year because it hasn't been raided. So all that is, that's an active growth site. It's just not under, it's not under activity right now, but it's definitely going to be one the following season. So a lot of fall hunters late into the fall and through the winter find these things and go, what did I walk into? Well, fortunately they didn't walk into it when it was active and get shot but they got to report it. And sometimes they don't. And then we end up with another public safety issue and stumble upon it by surprise the following seasons. So given all of that, it's, it's uh, it's an issue to look for. So those are things to look for. Um, one other thing I can think of is a supply cache. And when I say that, like a big green sea bag, you know, a, a kind of the sea train bag, the military bags, yeah, like a PG bag, earth colors, flat, darker dress, Drab, all of drab green. Um, if you find something on a trail and it's got sleeping bags, maybe pesticides, maybe grow supplies or food in it, and there's no real reason it should just be like laying hidden off the edge of a trail, that is a cache for a supplier to get to a grower that's got to grow somewhere close and they just haven't come and picked it up yet. Suppliers don't necessarily make face to face contact with the growers themselves, but they do it very carefully so they don't get caught either side of the fence. So you're going to want to look for bags like that. If something looks out of the ordinary, um, don't rifle through it because you might be handling toxic poisons that aren't contained. But take a picture of it, get a GPS coordinate, and report it as soon as you get out of the woods. God, man. So all of this stuff, let's let's go over some stats real quick um, with all the marijuana eradication that you've done, which is pretty damn sizable. It's impressive work that you guys have done just in your book alone, and it's still going on today. Let's see. You got 3 million uh, plants, marijuana plants that are poisoned, filled with this carbofuran shit. Season destroyed 29 tons of mar- uh, processed marijuana. That's actually the buds that they're that you guys destroyed. That's incredible, man. You made 973 felony arrests, seized uh, 601 firearms, you removed... 899,945 pounds, so 450 tons of grow site waste. And check this out. Speaking of the black pipe, where is it? You, what was it? How many miles of pipe did you guys actually remove? Do you remember how much pipe you actually removed? Oh, I'm not looking at the book, but I want to say it was like, I don't know, 480 miles or something or 450 miles. Here it like, is. 
445 miles. Like from the Silicon Valley to all the way down to San Diego to the border of just pipe. Um, and you know what? Those, those stats sound pretty drastic, but they're only a drop in the bucket, brother. When you think that's what our team accumulated over six years when I was there, it's continued for two more seasons since. And that's only what we reported of the missions we were on. Think of the other agencies like BLM, Forest Service, doing operations independent of us or sheriff's departments uh, in California, and then certainly 25 to 27 other states to a lesser extent. And the numbers are going to be quadruple that, if not higher, of any given one year. And that's the ones that we find. And if we're getting 50% of these growth sites, those factors, even on just what our team did in six years, could probably be doubled. So big numbers, right? Yeah, that's Uh, huge. A lot of toxics in the wildlands, a lot of woods destroyed. Um, I think the last conservative estimate in California, as an example, and this is going to be the biggest because being the weed state, it's the biggest DTO impacted state in the union. But keep in mind, there's many other states being impacted. Um, Approximately 100 to 120,000 acres of California land, if you put it all together, of all the different growth sites that we know of that we've eradicated, interdicted over the last decade, add up to about a hundred plus thousand acres. So that's basically, I mentioned Henry Coast State Park being my spiritual cornerstone and being influential for everything i become in the game warden world. That park is that big. Oh, and if shit. I look and it covers three counties. So that is a lot of fucking land it's being destroyed collectively and water poisoned and polluted and decimated for what we do know. So this is definitely not a small problem. It's definitely not going away. And when you start breaking it down with numbers, there's no way you don't get a red alert sign and want to be involved on some level and at least tell the story, which I'm really grateful for. Like you said, man, it's not exclusive just to California. It's, you know, right. it's that's, I mean, some of these climates are not going to be as well suited to growing marijuana uh, in the outdoor realm as California, like you said, with the Mediterranean climate. But it doesn't stop at the California border. It's in Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico, Washington, Idaho, Oregon. It's all over the place. So just these numbers in your book alone are from your operations. And like you said, with the hundred and something thousand acres amount, imagine looking at that and seeing on every three square feet, a marijuana plant for a hundred and something thousand acres. Now amplify yeah. that across more states. Like, holy yeah, shit, man, this is a huge problem. It's hard to wrap your head around. It really is. It's, it's, it's massive quantities. And, you know, I'm starting to work with a lot of the Midwest states and the Southeast states and the Southwest. And, you know, we, we all come back to um, kind of one underlying theme that, as soon as we start to regulate in a traditional method, state by state and, and piecemeal, where we're not doing anything consistent, these drug cartels come in and they start wrecking public lands. They start getting in wildlife refuges and growing cannabis. And then same protocol with the banned carbofuran. They all use the same poisons. It's just, it's in their SOPs, right? Their standard operating procedures for how these guys like to work, whether it's healthy or not. Um, and the other states are having the problem too. And, you know, what I've been doing a lot throughout the country before, during, and now finally in person pretty soon with COVID kind of lightening up, is just educating to this of what's really going on out there and what these guys can do to build a safe, effective team with the minimal resources they have to deal with it safely 
from a wildlife conservation or wildland fire standpoint, because a lot of other agencies are a lot smaller than ours. And we took a lot of years, the better part of over a decade to get to the level of competency that I think we've attained. Um, and we're dealing with states that have, instead of 400 to 500 game wardens, they might have 40 for the whole state. And now this is on their property on their wildlife refuges. How are they going to deal with this? Even if it's a small, you know, small number man operation, if these guys are dangerous and using those type of toxics. So there, there's a lot of education to be gleaned from this and a lot of effective ways to do it safely that we just didn't know in the early days. And we learned the hard way and we want to prevent other agencies and the public from learning the hard lessons we had to learn and uh, making the mistakes we made in the early days. Well, there's a lot of top-down lessons that be learned out of uh, your experiences, and like you said, educating the public and your and your fellow operators in this whole realm. It's critical to the success of this. We pretty much hammered how these the environmental damage has this top-down cascading effect, and it ultimately affects the outdoorsmen and women and the general public at the very end. Because this shit gets in the soil, it gets into the waterway, plants and animals get it in their in their system. The animals eat the plants, <laughs> the animals then die or they live on and they have trace amounts of these toxic chemicals or whatever shit they're putting in these plants. And right. you and I, I'm a, I love to go fly fishing. In fact, after this show, I'm going to probably go hit the river and go fly fish. Nice. So I could be eating that shit if I am a hunter or a, I'm a, I love chucker hunting, bird hunting is my game, my game and fly fishing that right. it affects us. Shit, even if uh, like say you have a ranch or something like that and you have a grow site above this ranch, these toxic chemicals are getting in those waterways. The cattle on this ranch are drinking this shit and now you're consuming it. That's a big deal, man. And even, It is. Yep. And even on top of that, if you are a consumer of marijuana or this cannabis that's going, in, uh, going out there, what are you consuming? I'd be worried about that too. Yeah. Ultimately, it comes down to, um, do you want to be complicit in being part of this black market trespass real product? Do you want to fuel their fire? Do you want to make them, uh, you know, successful? And secondly, do you want to risk ingesting carcinogens and nerve agents that you don't know you're, you're ingesting? And that's ultimately what it is. And we talked a little bit about, uh, before the show, about how some of this stuff is making into the legitimate market and making it into dispensaries. And it is make no mistake. Um, regulation is really new, especially in States like California. And I'll use California as an example because we started to do the recreational side of, of regulation fairly recently. So it's been a couple of years. Um, but we're also really big in quantity and in quality of varying quality of cannabis in California being a weed state. Right. Um, we know for a fact that regulation is so hodgepodge and it's a cash business and the checks and balances of, you know, seed to sale, being able to track every plant and what was used on it and inspect all of it for purity through, you know, the testing process for pesticides and everything in between. It's just nowhere near where it needs to be. Uh, it's not getting done. So this stuff is making it into the legitimate market under the auspice of something else. And it's very easily distributed through a network of distribution, organization, and, and competence from the cartel groups and the cells to get it out of California and get it all over the rest of the country. And we know 
it's thriving because they continue to produce it as much as they can. They continue to bring it across the border and still grow it in Mexico with the same chemicals on it. It's, it's taken through the tunnels. You know, we, we talk about that in our LE classes, showing pictures of these tunnels and, you know, these hundred pound bindles of marijuana with a particular cell organization moniker to show who produced it going through on those rail cars, a little underground railroad under the border. Holy we have shit. the panga boat threat that's coming from the ocean where the cartels build a one-way high-capacity boat with two armed growers on it or transporters and up to 6,000 pounds of tainted processed cannabis. Holy shit. And they leave the inland side of Mexico, go around the Gulf, around the Baja Peninsula, fuel up somewhere offshore past San Diego, maybe Channel Islands or somewhere in between, and then run that boat all the way up to the, to the Western seaboard and have a, a precise random coordinate where they can get to a secluded beach, have a group of traffickers and transporters with vans and haul, hauling vehicles ready to pick them up. They dump that boat, they get that load in the car and it goes all over the country. So they're hitting it from three angles because they know they're losing some dust inland. They know they're losing a lot, some at the border because border restrictions and border checks and border technology and enforcement's gotten a lot better especially in the last four years, there have been some good things down there as a result of the current administration. Um, and then they've got this panga boat thing going, that's been going hot and deep for the better part of six, seven, eight years. Uh, last stat we were told recently is more than 20 of these panga boats make it to the Western seaboard somewhere between California and the Washington coastline every month. Holy and shit. And that's yeah. 6,000 pounds per Yes. And maybe three to five of them ever get caught or interdicted um, or discovered. And the ones that do get discovered are usually abandoned. The load is gone. And here you have this custom built, high cargo capacity, precisely painted vessel that matches ocean water. So it's really hard to see from the air or on the water. And some 250 horsepower, high dollar Honda or Yamaha four stroke motors and a bunch of fuel you know, big 33 gallon buckets of fuel for the fuel that it's going to take to get those, that, that load here just left on the shoreline, probably a hundred to $300,000 investment of a disposable investment, small price to pay for the five to 10 to $20 million they're going to make on that load. So we see these abandoned boats and uh, that tells you how aggressively the cartels are still pushing to get cannabis in here because we have a market, we have a demand for it. Those same boats, brother, can haul methamphetamine in larger, as large a quantity, fentanyl, counterfeit prescription pills. They can haul terrorists if that were, if that were uh, an issue. They can haul guns. I mean, think what you can get into American borders to do harm through a cartel presence with the Panga boat, especially with the Panga boat network being so organized and effective because they tested the waters. So a lot more than just the cannabis issue, but the threat is coming from three sides, not just what we're seeing growing within America. So you, this is like a, a wildly larger problem than just domestic, domestic trespass growth sites. Absolutely. Absolutely. I see this as um, one of the top American sovereign border threats. I see it as one of the most internal damaging threats to America coming from south of the border by those groups. Um, and also their effectiveness and embedding within America and never having to leave and operating with impunity. And they've been here and they've been here a long time and they're, they're very comfortable here. So to think that this is just guys getting smuggled across the border to grow a little bit of tainted weed and then, you know, integrate a little bit in America and go back home. 
that's incredibly short-sighted and it's not the case at all. This goes much deeper than that. Um, and quite frankly, as far as our border threat and as far as an immediate threat with it being literally on our Southern border, that tells us something that's alarming, no matter how you, how you slice this thing up. Well, like you were saying too, I mean, it's just not exclusive to the marijuana importation. Uh, it's, it's much more than that. It's, you know, it's methamphetamine. It's the fentanyl, it's heroin. It's all sorts of shit. It's even human trafficking, which you brought up earlier too, as well. Yeah. The human trafficking thing. And I'm glad to see human trafficking getting more attention in the media, even through these crazy times with this crazy election period, we're seeing more highlights on social media on it. Uh, more of people in, in, in kind of my world of tactical or law enforcement, military backgrounds getting involved because it really is a more comprehensive threat. And these criminal groups are involved together in all these different elements. And it shows you how much bigger and larger and more organized, more lucrative. And because of all of those things, more dangerous these groups are to the American public. It's crazy, man. So as far as defunding these things, taking away some of that, because no one really gives a shit about weed. We, I think right. we can all agree at this point in time, 2020, I mean, shit, what, six other states this year voted in rec? And I believe even Montana and I think uh, a couple other states, Mississippi, I, I, I can't keep track of all of them, but they voted in the, the rec use of it. So how do we, well, I guess there's not a lot of money in weed. It's all the other shit, but the other shit that's coming into the, our borders is a lot more profitable, I guess you could say. So if you were to take away the money avenues for the marijuana side of this whole operation and say, you know what, let's just federally legalize it. Do you think that would help at all? Or do you think we're going to see the same problems with uh, that we saw in California with this stuff still entering into the white market uh, side of things? Yeah, it's a good question. And you know what, to answer you, it can be effective, but it's not do we just federally regulate like we throw a blanket federal regulate regulation and decriminalize it across the board? It's how are we going to regulate it? California is an example. And I talk about this in hidden war at the end of the book. I go, look, I'm not saying we don't need to regulate this stuff. I'm not saying we, you know, should not decriminalize it because I believe that we should, you know, 40 to 50 million American cannabis consumers are not going to stop or, or start because it's regulated or not regulated, that just doesn't add up to me at least for what that's worth. The bottom line is if we're gonna regulate federally, we have to do it across the board with uh, you know, purity standards. We have to make it a fair market value regulated like the tobacco or the wine industry, same type of thing. We've got real good experience in those two realms of how to do it effectively and not have a big prohibition in, in alcohol or tobacco. Now there is going to be some black market stuff. There's going to be some small groups going and doing their thing. But if we had this stuff affordable to legitimate recreational consumers where it's uh, nationally or uh, medical consumers, and it was tested and to you know, federal standards and inspected at the state and the federal level, uh, and it was not four times the price of what black market, you know, Mexican cartel weed costs, you would have a significant dent on these cartels in the cannabis area. You would shut them down or, or come close to almost eliminating that threat, I, I believe, if there was no more demand for this because Americans were just, they had access to good stuff at a reasonable price. Um, as far as the other crimes go, that is 
there's no real way to see a solution on that because as long as these, uh, you know, per, uh, remanufactured narcotics, these black market narcotics are produced, human trafficking is lucrative, gun running, whatever the other case may be that these groups are involved in, there's no real easy solution with regulation that'll ever solve that. You know, there's certain elements of dehumanizing people, human rights violations, a total lack of concern or empathy or care for health and human safety and human dignity and respect for people as individuals coming from the mindset of these cartel groups uh, for that to ever change. And what we find, the more I study the frame of reference and the mental and the mental outlook that cartel operatives have toward American marketplace, it's really disheartening because from a culture of chaos and socialized in a, in a, a world of dog eat dog and, and violence as a way of life and everything from patron saint worship and what the, the deities they worship that are derivatives of our Catholic saints, a whole nother topic I educate on. Um, it's pretty disheartening. It's pretty mind blowing to see how little these criminal enterprises care about people outside of their immediate loved ones, if that. And the problem there is, how are you going to ever get that behavior to stop if there's money to be made and that's the only way of being sustained? And killing and violence and poisoning is a way of life of doing business to sustain yourself or your family uh, you know, in pretty horrible conditions in some of these third world areas, especially South America and Mexico. That's going to be the bigger topic we have to deal with you know, as far as our American public is, is, is concerned from a safety standpoint outside of the cannabis problem. It's kind of crazy that you mentioned that too, because it seems to me like it's like a lot of these cartel operatives and these organizations, these DTOs that are out there are modern day slavers. That's what it kind of seems like to me. And that's what the human trafficking element. It's not just like kids or anything like that. It's, it's much right. more than that. And a lot of these people that come over here, they're required to pledge loyalty to these cartel operations. And basically you're going to get killed. You're going to get smoke checked if you uh, yeah. try and run. So yeah. that's, that's slavery in my book. Indentured servitude, whatever you want to call it. It's that's, it's fucked up. And yeah, it, yeah. It, it's, it's absolutely a, a, an absolute demeaning and belittlement of, you know, the human condition and what we're supposed to be as people. And, you know, it doesn't matter, I think, where you're raised or where you're from. And, you know, I'm going off on a, a little bit of a, you know, more of um, a frame of reference, a human decency tangent here. But I think you hit it on the head. The bottom line is in a world of gray we live in where everything can be rationalized away, explained excuses made, not reasons, but excuses where we can almost justify any bad, what we would con traditionally consider bad behavior. Um, in this world of gray, there to me is a black and a white fucking line. And that black and the white line, that line in the sand where black and white, good versus evil, there is a good and there is an evil standard that is really, really basic. And you said it best, when you're trafficking in humans, you're keeping people against their will you're belittling another human being for the sake of profit or any other reason that's evil. I don't see it as anything else, brother. And some people could chastise me for it. So be it. That is evil. That person needs to be taken out of circulation. They need to be stopped. And we need to fight that just like Nazi genocide, genocide in any other war torn country. Or we saw the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, you know, there's really no difference. The only other thing is it's almost like a cold war version of genocide 
because we're doing it secretly. Uh, we're not doing it in, in, in the numbers as big in any one period of time. This is happening pervasively, you know, over years, but it's affecting thousands and thousands, if not millions of people over the long run. And it's proving to be as lucrative, not more lucrative than the narcotics trade and the other, you know, and the other lucrative endeavors the cartels are involved in than human trafficking. It's a big money operation. So it's something we need to look at as a country. And, you know, with all this infighting and all this drama around the election and everything going on with COVID right now, uh, you're seeing blurbs of it. It's starting to kind of come out like we've been discussing, but when all this crap settles from the election, I hope we see a focus on this and all of us in public service on some level, whatever we can do to help through outreach and education, like you and I are having this discussion now and whatever I can do outside of the realm. Cause I certainly didn't deal on a direct level with human trafficking very much dealing with this cannabis fight with the cartels, but I certainly ran across it when I was living in Southern California. I've certainly worked on the border with my Arizona and New Mexico and Texas partners where we've seen it firsthand on hunting ranches, you know, uh, border patrol check stations and things like that. It's something I think we should all get involved in in some level to at least educate and prevent and something we got to keep, keep working towards because that will be the pervasive problem that's going to continue with these cartel groups well after we regulate or don't regulate cannabis in America. Oh, absolutely. And that's another thing I want to point. I want to clarify. We're not talking like QAnon conspiracy level shit here. We're talking about literal trucks like U-Haul trucks packed full of people that are trafficking humans. And all these poor people want is a better life. They want to escape the violence of some of these areas in south of the border. They want a better life. So there's it's kind of naive for us to sit here to say that we have one stop solution because it's so complex. Like you've said it, it's such a complex problem and it's not just the marijuana grows. It's not just the fentanyl trade. It's not just the cocaine trade. It's not just the human trafficking. All of this shit plays into each other and it creates a very lucrative market. And with human greed, I guess it's that greed of unbridled capitalism, just in a different form. (laughs) it's not going to stop unless we hammer down on it. And you just said it perfectly right there. Yeah, it's, it, it's not, we're, we're going to have to stay involved in it. And ultimately um, money's driving the bus, you know, everybody wants their piece of the pie and we're all motivated by materialism or, you know, we're, we're at least we're, I, I think socialized to be programmed by materialism. And I think we need to put the human condition in this equation a lot more and really look past what benefits us and our family members directly. Um, and it's interesting that that is kind of a, kind of a template to maybe resolving or at least making headway on the crazy fringe elements we've seen through this election phase and through this COVID COVID pandemic that you and I have discussed a little bit before the show on making no headway because the extreme right and the extreme left and the, and the extreme examples we're seeing on social media and we're seeing in some of the popular media visually um, just generates nothing but animosity and and alienation from each other. And it's horrible. And I can agree to disagree with anybody. Uh, In fact, I've seen a lot of crazy things out there to be quite honest with you that, you know, I think affect us negatively as a country, but every voice counts. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and, this, and we got to stay humanistic on it. And this, this uh, human trafficking is a textbook example of where we can, we can be right on this or we can ignore it and just stay hateful. And I, I hope for the opposite, certainly like you do. There's a lot of people like us that are kind of somewhere in the middle of this whole political spectrum. And I, I, I genuinely hope that one day 
both sides can just settle the fuck down, stop the animosity <laughs> and come to a conclusion and make a real change. Not only just within our borders and start there. I mean, shit, man, we got enough problems in the world. <laughs> We've got a, more problems right here at home that we could be solved. Well, you know, you're right, brother. And the sad part about it is if, if we continue this type of fight with each other, if we don't get our country buttoned up and we don't start to appreciate what our founding fathers built in this great nation and the freedoms we have, the opportunities, you know, the, the level of safety our family and friends and each other have in this country compared to everywhere else on the globe. Even the level of wealth start, too. Right. Yeah. And if we don't start appreciating that to the level that we're willing to fight for that, or we're willing to get dirty or cold or hot or whatever, and work hard to protect that, then we've lost. And I'm very much concerned with this empathy on such a level and this entitlement mentality going on throughout a lot of America where, Hey, if this doesn't directly affect me, then why do I have to worry about human trafficking? I'm in the best country in the world. I'm going to get a stimulus check. I'm going to get a free lunch. I'm going to have my student loan, you know, deferred and paid for all of these other things. If that's the mentality where we don't think we, we are accountable or we have to pay back or we have to be grateful and, and put some effort toward what we've been given here. Everybody before us built this. And if we don't continue to build it and protect it, man, Hey, you know, the, uh, the, the, the beautiful country will fall and we will continue to have an influx of criminal elements and, outside of, uh, you know, human and health safety, like we discussed, again, I come back to that whole circular reapproach to the thin green line. Um, what breaks my heart is to see our wildlands decimated. And as you know, from being a wildland firefighter, um, open space is already getting less and less and less and less as we encroach with growth. And then we get massive fire campaigns and we get cartels poisoning waterways and everything else. And not only will there not be anything left for you and I that actually recreate, enjoy fishing, enjoy hunting, whatever we do in the outdoors, OHV, trail running for me, different things, um, there will never be an opportunity for the urban generation of the next generations to enjoy that. <clears throat> and that's heartbreaking. It really is. So I think we need to wake up and, and we all need to take a little ownership. Oh, absolutely. And do something with it. I forget who's who said this, who coined this quote, but the threat for any democracy usually comes from within. I, yep. for, I forget who says that. Someone will probably correct me on it, but yeah, that's definitely one of those things, man. <laughs> well, it's well said and it's true. Um, we're getting complicit. We're, uh, we're not paying attention. We, you know, we got our myopic, you know, 20 foot view. We need to get out a little bit and maybe get a 30, 30 foot view or bigger and look past ourselves. And I'm guilty as the next guy, you know, I'm like you, you know, trying to keep a family safe, trying to make the most of life, trying to educate, you know, trying to do everything I can to send the right message. And sometimes I will be honest, I will lose sight of the bigger picture for a minute. One, because I just need a mental break from it, to be honest. <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> it, can, it can be a real ass kicker, man. It could be a, a Beavis and Butthead buzzkill for lack of a better term, you know, until you can kind of regroup when you're just kind of spinning your wheels, trying to prevent stuff like that. But, um, taking that, that tactical breath and looking around and realizing what we can do to be part of the solution and not the problem is huge. And, uh, and I'm my own worst critic on that. And, and I, I can always do better at it as well. I think that's uh that, that sentiment can be shared across everybody. Absolutely. But yeah, man, uh, this has been a very eye-opening uh, podcast, and uh, I, I definitely want to thank you for being on the show. And uh, a couple more questions for you, if you don't mind. But uh, do you have any? Do you have any uh, plans to write a new book? 
Oh, that's a good question. Um, so what I can say at this point is maybe on a, maybe on a, a third book, which uh, would be a one, it'll be a new topic. Uh, it might be a continuation. I can't talk totally about what it will be yet. It's still in its initial phases with my publishing group. But what I can say is the, the next book will actually be the second edition of Hidden War. And the second edition of Hidden War will have new content um, because there have been a lot of lessons learned. There's been a lot of quote unquote declassified stuff I can discuss that I could not discuss from a mission standpoint, some pivotal mission stuff in California. Um, and also what has happened since COVID, aside of COVID, the public doesn't know. And some of those topics we've talked about today, but I'd go into way more depth on it. So um, the second edition of Hidden War is going to be as exciting as writing the first one. It's going to be kind of a new twist with new material. It'll have a whole new look to it. Um, it'll have new content. It'll still have a lot of the same content as well. But what I can say is that will kind of preface, that will freshen up and excite to a, a more in-depth level than, than the first edition has done. And it will preface where I'm probably going to go in the third book. And I'll just tease it at that for now. Awesome. I'm looking forward to it, brother. I got to pick up your first book too and finish that one next. So I kind of started out of order, but Hey, I'm looking forward to it. And then I'll well, that was one thing. The books were 10 years apart. And honestly, between the two, I think the one that really hits the hardest is hidden more because um, it was done by a publisher that I work so much more directly with. Um, there's so much like-minded, you know, my brand that is my publishing group is gun digest magazine and caribou publishing, which is the book arm of gun digest is who did hidden war. And those guys are just great. You know, they're conservationists, they're true Americans. They love wildlife. They hunt, they fish. Um, they're hardworking American people, you know? So they, they actually took the book further than I want, than I thought we would. They insisted on that color section in the middle of it with all those beautiful color photos of everything from tactical stuff, canine stuff, grow poisons, warning signs, and added all that extra material at the end. Uh, which has been really good. Um, and that brand's also part of recoil and blade magazine and blade show and recoil TV that actually facilitate. And I do my fingering line film series for that entire, you know, entails all of the hidden work topics, but goes into it on a visual medium and goes into conservation hunting and, and issues all over the country. So, um, uh, uh, my point is to the two books, if you're going to start out of order, it's not a bad choice to jump on hidden war and then go back and get the, the historical stuff in, in war in the woods. Perfect, man. No, I dig it. So last and final question. Yeah. You know, this one's coming. When's the Rush cover band going to start touring? Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> yeah, now that one. That I one saw that I video, it. man. <laughs> I did not know you were a Rush fan when we saw a dialogue. I'm a huge yeah. Rush fan. I love it, man. Yeah, it was, it was great. And um, we're not actually a Rush cover band, but we're Rush fans in the band. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about the band. We're, uh, we're fun and it's something... I've kind of been um, on the fringes of doing, but I, I told the guys I would not jump into that until I, I was retired from phase one enough and in Montana permanently to do the band justice. Because these three performers, man, for being, you know, hardworking American mountain guys with jobs and careers and later in life, incredibly talented musicians and covering everything from Rush to Ozzy to Van Halen to Offspring to Devo to... Rick Springfield, the gin blossoms to collective soul to poor. I mean, you name it. We cover, we do four generations of rock and roll. All the good and shit. when I got roped in, I started blind, uh, meeting two of them that I had never met, uh, new year's Eve, two years ago at a gig at a VFW of all places on a cold winter night on new year's and to sing new world man, to sing the one rush song that they cover. And 
you can imagine that not knowing an incredible bass player, an incredible guitar player yet, and only being really close with the drummer, a good friend of mine, uh, that was a little un- unnerving, you know, one, because <laughs> I got to hear him play two sets of music and realized how talented they are. And I thought, if I fuck this up, uh, I'm going to embarrass myself. I'm going to embarrass them. And there's no way they're going to let me play in this band, but it, it went good enough that uh, it continued. Um, and now we are doing new rush stuff. We're working on some new rush tunes. I won't say what yet, but they're complex. Cause you know, rush they're frog rock, uh, man. They are hard to cover, man, but they're, they're awesome. And, and we're doing some other really, really cool woodshed stuff through the winter. Cause through uh, COVID we've done two gigs, um, two outdoor gigs nice. that, that we were able to actually do safely Fourth uh, of July and Labor Day up here in, in, in uh, you know, Northwestern Montana. But we've had to say no to a lot of indoor offers for even small get togethers and we just won't do them because of safety. So in a summer where we usually play, anywhere between 12 and 20 gigs in a summer, we've done like three and, you know, we're kind of a little, little down on that, but at the same time, because there's four of us now and we've got time and we're getting creative and we can kind of, you know, um, share the load of of duties on the, in the band. Um, we've had a lot more time to woodshed and do new material and really structure new material. So we're bringing like 10 brand new songs uh, that the band's never done before to our repertoire of already 60 to 70 other songs. And quite honestly, the guys, I mean, they're great songs, some of the old ones, but the guys have played them for seven years, you know, and it gets to a certain point where it's like, you know, I love this song, but I'm kind of getting tired of playing this song over and over again. And, you know, time to put it out the past year, you know, can we do one collective soul song instead of two? And don't want to get coined as a tribute band too much and get pigeonholed, but, uh, but no, everybody respects the the power trio from Canada, especially because of the complexity of the music. And, and, and these guys are good enough to pull it off. And I can, I can pull off some of not all, but some of Getty Lee's later stuff. Uh, cause he sings so dang high, but man, what inspirational music is, you know, and we're, we're having a lot of fun. We're area 56, um, up here in, uh, Lincoln and Lincoln County. And uh, yeah, you can follow us on Facebook. Just look at, look for area 56 and you'll get updates and we keep it small for a reason. Um, you know, we all got very busy lives and you know, you know what I'm doing. It's, there's a lot going on all over the country. So uh, we're, we're going to have a lot more fun and you will see uh, you will see a new rush tune coming up in that new mix and new stuff. Hell yeah. Did you get to see them uh, on the rush 40 tour before uh, Neil Peart died? I did. I did. I saw him twice. I saw the R40 show twice. Um, saw him up in, I can't remember if it was Portland and the Silicon Valley. And then I wasn't able to go, but my sister, firefighter, retired captain, I mentioned, she and I were the Rush fans growing up, really resonated on Rush for motivation when stuff got crazy. And uh, she saw him on the last show they played of that tour in Los Angeles when they did the second time they did Losing It Live. Oh, wow. And, he texted me from that show and I was so happy for her and so heartbroken for me. I'm like, they actually played that song and it fits so well. And then with everything, you know, we lost Neil this year, as you know, and man, what, what a hard loss. Were you able to see the R40 tour? I think we might've been at the same show, man. Cause if you saw him in Portland, I was at that show. That was, we were there. It was awesome, <laughs> That's man. such a small world, man. <laughs> <laughs> kindred spirits oh yeah i was stoked man that was one of the bands that i've always that's like one of those like hang your hat on yeah i got to see these guys that that was yeah. eye-opening as soon as they opened they opened up i was like yes and then they started playing closer to the heart and i was like this is perfect it was awesome yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. And it was, it was a great lineup. They played all the right songs, but it was, mm-hmm. it was bittersweet. And then that, um, I don't know if you saw, I think they call it the R40 part two or plus, but they did the, uh, the documentary that they premiered in theaters one night yep. last August. And I remember I was in Atlanta, Georgia with a music producer reading for the audible version of hidden war and, um, Trammell Starks, billboard artist, record producer, awesome musician, and he does audible books. And it was kind of a happenstance way we connected. And so I was with him for five days, two and a half hours a day, reading through hidden war and he did an original score for it, added sound effects, really resonated with the message. He had a great job on the Audible, I got to admit it. It's just incredible. But I remember the third day of reading for the book, and he's asking me, what are you going to do tonight when we're done? And I go, well, this is going to sound kind of nerdy, but I know you're a billboard guy. I don't know if you know the band Rush. He goes, of course I know Rush. And I go, <laughs> they're, doing, they're doing one night in theaters to see this R40 Part 2 video documentary of their last tour in the end. And I'm going to go see that. He's like that's incredible, man. I didn't know they were doing that and they're breaking up. I go, well, they didn't break up. They just kind of ended Yeah. for, you know, well, they, they were done. I mean, they never really broke up, but, um, and then he said, uh, well, what, what, what do you, uh, what song do you hope they play? And I went, well, matter of fact, I hope they do something with losing it because it resonates and Ben Mink on that electric violin back from the signals album. So in his studio with all his surround sound speakers and all his syncopation on every different part and track, we loaded that song in it. He closed his eyes and looked down, listened to losing it with it pumped up, broke it down musically. He's like five, four time signature. Oh my gosh. Oh, this is deep. He's just going on and on. He's right. breaking down the math of the song. <laughs> this is such a crazy song. And I go, yeah. And when you see what's where Neil's at in his age and why they're leaving. And that was before we knew, you know, the, the, the brain tumor thing yeah. was going on. Um, he just had instant respect for that, you know, and, and they played part of that song in it when they talked about how hard it was for them to leave and how hard Neil was still playing the drums with all those ailments. And yeah, so it was kind of a neat roundabout world to get another music producer into what we were kind of doing. And then he, he kept asking, because as you know, in Hidden War, there's two quotes from Rush. Yep. And then in War in the Woods, there's two quotes from Rush that really resonated on missions. And he's like, so you're a Rush fan. I go, yeah, you think? Just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so he wanted to know the origin of those. And of course we bonded musically. So uh, yeah, but that was, I consider that the virtual last show, you know, a concert, if you will. But uh, but they were amazing. I think I, I think I saw them about 26 times Holy since I was shit. in school. Yeah, pretty much once I got into them in 84 on the Grace Under Pressure album, it was anytime they were in the Bay Area, my sister and I started seeing them and different friends and you know and that kind of really led to me getting more into rock and roll than, than doing any other type of music later on in life so it's all rush's fault <laughs> see <laughs> neil pert's looking down right now and be like ah this is all your fault <laughs> it's all your fault man yeah. i can't believe you at that portland show that's so cool that's small so world, and here we are super small later, you know god man that's crazy well dude yeah so speaking of your book man where can we find your book yeah, it's on Amazon. Um, that's probably the easiest and fastest way to buy it if you want a public copy. Um, the hard hardcover is available on Amazon, the Kindle, and the Audible. And honestly, they're all great. Um, if you want the pictures and you want the print copy, I recommend it. But the Audible is cool because old Trammell Starks did a fantastic job on scoring the music and putting the sound effects in. And I got to admit, it was surreal to read for it but um, and relive all those moments. And you, I think you can kind of feel that when you, when you hear the Audible. Um, 
with COVID, I'm not doing book signings anymore for a while, unfortunately. So people that want personalized copies, just hit me up through my website, which is johnnorris.com. Uh, you'll get a link to my email, which is trailblazer413 at yahoo.com. And just say hi, give me a direct message. I do Venmo, PayPal, personal checks, and I'll put signed book copy packages and mail them anywhere in the country. Um, my signature blade, the the thin green line trailblazer folding blade. Which is a bitchin' knife, by the way. Thank you. Everyday carry that was designed, you know, for, for uh, first responders, but great for everybody. Um, by my buddy V-Knives, uh, Mike Bellacamp, owner of the V-Knives Knife Company. We collaborated. I'm his brand ambassador for a good line of knives. But that V-Knives blade, the trailblazer, I will also do personalized blade box copies and, and or uh, uh, packages and do book and uh, blade combo packages at, at good discounts and personalize both of them. If anyone wants a personal one, just hit me up on uh, Instagram direct message, messenger on Facebook, or through my website, my email, and we'll get you taken care of. Hell yeah, man. So last and final thing on the show, I offer the opportunity to uh, go have you give a shout out to a homie, a hero mentor. Who do you got for us, man? God, man, that's, uh, that's big. That's really big. Um, a homie or a mentor. I have so many of them, you know, that kind of got me here, but, um, we talked so much about Matt and I gotta, I gotta give a shout out to chief Mike carry on now retired now living in Hawaii, you know, Lucky. um, <laughs> he allowed and had so much faith in me and influenced me to be the instructor, the game warden, the law enforcement officer, you know, the counselor, I learned and have emulated so much of what he taught me as a leader, um, not only in special operations, but in my entire career and actually how I deal with the public on every level from an, on an outreach standpoint and, um, couldn't have done it without him. And I just, you know, his belief in me meant the world to form something like Met. It's historical and as unorthodox and non-traditional as it was, and to see what he allowed us to build, and being so much of that build, um, I just got, I can't thank him enough. Really blessed to have him as a friend, as a mentor, and as a leader that allowed me to, to, to make that happen. Awesome, man. No, that's a hell of a shout out. I like it. Well, John, dude, thank, Lieutenant, <laughs> did I call you <laughs> Lieutenant now? <laughs> LT. <laughs> so John, dude, thank you so much for being on the show. Your book is wildly inspiring and wildly eye-opening, man. And I thank you for being on the show and giving me this opportunity to spread the message among the uh, wildland firefighting community. It's one hell of a story. Brandon, I'm honored to be on the show, man. Good to get to know you a little bit better. And thanks for all you're doing with this great podcast, the message you're sending kudos to you for doing it and uh all of my listeners and, and followers i'm going to tune them right into this and and uh give give you a shout out and keep it up man thanks again thanks man i appreciate it everybody take care All right, ladies and gentlemen, there we go. Another episode of the Anchor Point Podcast is in the books with Lieutenant John Norris. John, dude, thank you so much for being on the show, man. That's one hell of a story. And your book is freaking incredible. I, it's like a must read and I couldn't put it down. Like I said in the uh, the podcast, I, my, my, my wife was kind of getting a little bit pissed at me because I <laughs> wouldn't stop reading it. Anyways, um, <clears throat> yeah, just to highlight some of those operational hazards, especially you folks up there in the... Uh, Emerald Triangle, uh, using air quotes here, but you know Humboldt County, Trinity County, Shasta County, um, 
all those areas up there. Make sure you guys keep your heads on a swivel. Uh, I wouldn't want to be stumbling into one of these active grow sites and be ambushed by uh, somebody with an AK-47. That's not on my list of things to do. Luckily, the uh, grow that I stumbled across was, uh, you know, unoccupied at the time and we got the hell out of there. But these are dangerous. And uh, I, I think that in addition to the immediate hazards of, you know, fires being created by these guys, the booby traps that they sense, the the hostility, you know, it, it poisons these streams, these waterways, the plants, the animals, they use these horrible toxins called carbofurans and it's disgusting, man. It's just, just, it's shitty stuff. So John, once again, man, thank you so much for being on the show and uh, yeah, keep doing what you're doing, man. This is, this is a cool story. And if you guys want to, check out his book. I'll definitely drop some links in the uh, show notes. That way you guys could uh, get your hands on a copy of Hidden War or War in the Woods. Two excellent books. Highly recommend them. Or you could just hit him up uh, personally, uh, like he said, or uh, directly rather through his Instagram. And he left that uh, information in the tail end of the episode. Special shout out to all of our sponsors. We got Manscaped. They are awesome. And they make awesome stocking stuffers. And if you go over to www.manscaped.com, you can get 20% off plus free shipping with the code AnchorPoint. Use code AnchorPoint at checkout for 20% off and free shipping site-wide. We got Mystery Ranch. They are the chief supporter of this entire operation and their backbone series and scholarships are open now. So get your name in the hat. Go uh, have the opportunity to win one of those grants. It's pretty badass. We got Hotshot Brewery, purveyors of the finest damn coffee on the West Coast, and we've got the Ass Movement. <laughs> they are uh, currently well. Congratulations, by the way. Uh, he just had another. He had a, a, another kid, and uh, yeah, I just want to say congratulations, man. But he is the chief propagandist of burying your turds in the woods. So go over there and check him out. And last but not least, we've got the Smoky Generation, Bethany. You have a kick-ass organization going on over there. Keep it up. And for the rest of you, a little uh, word of advice. Uh, take COVID seriously because this shit sucks. It's not fun. I'm wildly out of breath from this. <laughs> Anyways, you guys know the drill. Have fun. Stay safe. Stay savage. Peace. Peace.